you were here last night, uh, you're aware that we have uh, an app called Pigeonhole, um, and you can uh, scan the QR code on the screen, or you can um, type in pigeonhole.at, and the password is Jesus. And so if you, um, if you want to access that app, that will give you access to submit a question as well as to see what other questions have been submitted and to vote on them. Um, and so we'll be using that to help guide us in our Q&A. We've also added um, the option to ask a question um, uh, on an open mic. So what we have is um, we have Eric. Eric's in the back. And if you want to turn and look in the corner, Eric's going to be back there. And so if you'd like to ask um, Sam a question, we'll have a mic available. And so just go and see Eric, and he'll help get you squared away to ask your question. So he'll be back there um, in the corner. Um, and so uh, again, just want to say thank you in advance for your questions. Uh, we had so many great questions last night, and we've got some more great questions uh, this morning. And again, just appreciate um, you uh, trusting us with your questions, and so excited to to talk about some of these this morning. So, Sam, let's, uh, let's jump in. So here we go. Um, so one of the questions uh, that was asked um, uh, by several folks uh, was, how do we balance grace and truth, addressing people by their chosen pronouns versus birth sex? What is best? Yeah, wow, okay. Um, so, on the very first part of the question, um, John chapter 1, verse 17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, grace and truth go together in Jesus, which means we can never excuse having one at the expense of not having the other. Sometimes it's easy for us to think, well, I'm, going to be, I'm not going to be gracie, I'm going to be truthy. And other times we might think, I'm not going to be truthy, I'm going to be gracie. And we can't be one without being both. So if you think you have one without the other, you have neither. Biblical truth is gracious, biblical grace is truth-telling and truthful. So we have no excuse ever to, to sort of let ourselves off the hook of lacking one of those two things. So in all of our interactions, we want to be people who embody the grace of Jesus and who reflect the truth of Jesus. Uh, we, don't get to, we don't get to pit one against the other. When it comes to, to pronouns, um, uh, with, with friends who are transgender and identifying as a, as a sex other than the one that they were sort of physically born as, um, there's a lot of factors that would go into how we, how we respond to that situation. Um, uh, some verses that help me a bit with this are in Proverbs chapter 26. In verse 4 of Proverbs 26, it says... Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. The fool in the book of Proverbs is a person who doesn't fear God, doesn't believe in God. Answer not a fool according to his folly. In other words, don't buy into that person's wrong way of thinking, lest you be like him yourself. The more you buy into the false categories that someone might have who doesn't believe in God, the more you may end up actually becoming more like them. So don't do that, okay? Answer not a fool according to his folly. So we think, okay, thank you, book of Proverbs. I now know not to do that. Next verse, answer a fool according to his folly. <laughs> Lest he be wise in his own eyes. So in other words, answer a fool according to his folly. Take their wrong way of thinking 
and run with it in such a way that you get to show them in time why it doesn't work. So what do we do with that? We either, as, as one um, college professor of mine suggested, say this, this is evidence that the Bible is absurd and contradictory and therefore throw the whole thing out. Or we can recognize this is wisdom literature. And so what this book is showing us, what these two verses side by side are showing us is there's going to be times when it's wise to respond in a way that, that adopts someone's wrong way of thinking. And there are going to be times when it's wise to not do that which means there's, there's a bit of freedom and discretion here and, and use of judgment. So because of those two verses, I, I can't say it's never right to use that person's chosen pronoun. And I can't use, because of this proverb, I can't say it's never right, it's never wrong to use that person's chosen pronoun. I'm going to need to try and think through what is going to be the wise course of action with this person in this particular moment. And for me, one of the factors is if they are someone who is completely outside the Christian faith, I'm more likely to, to use their chosen pronoun because I'm thinking, I, I want to start building relationship with this person. And if I'm saying to them at the very beginning of our, of our encounter, if I'm effectively saying, well, a condition of us having a conversation is that you use the pronouns that I believe are true for you, we're not going to get very far. Um, if they're not a Christian, they don't understand that yet. And I, I want to be hospitable. And more than that, if, if one of us is going to be feeling a bit of discomfort about language and pronouns, I'd rather that was me than them. I want them to feel comfortable because I'm, I'm wanting to build a friendship that I hope in time will be a friendship through which they can come to find not just the wisdom of God, but the, the grace and love of God as well. On the, on the other side of that, if, it's, if, it's, if an elder at my church says, hey, from now on, I'd like you to, to address me as this and call me by this pronoun, I'm more likely in that instance to say no. Because, again, that, that's someone who should know better. And confirming their way of thinking in that instance, I think, would be, would be unwise. So a lot of it depends on where the person is at in relation to Christ. If they're on the outside and there's a chance of them being drawn in, I'm going to be more flexible. If they're on the inside and it looks like they're being disobedient to Jesus, I'm going to be less flexible. So for what that's worth, different Christians will have some differing thoughts and all of that, but those, uh, that's where I'm at on this. Great. Thank you, Sam. Another question uh, folks were asking is, uh, should a Christian attend the same-sex wedding of their child, friend, family member? Uh, and then a follow-up, how do you show love for them but not celebrate a union that God does not honor? Thank you. Um, thank you for that question. Someone actually asked me that last night as well. And the, the first thing I want to say, when, whenever a Christian says, do I go to my to my gay friend's wedding, that the first thing I want to say to them is thank you for being the kind of Christian that that person wants at their wedding. Um, that, that's probably a sign that you are, you know, Jesus was called the friend of sinners. Jesus hung out with people that others said he shouldn't have hung out with. So and maybe a word to, to any of us who, who just never, ever get invited to a gay wedding. Maybe we're not being the friends to LGBT people that Jesus would have us be. So, in other words, it's, if you're in a bit of a dilemma about what to do in that situation, I just want to affirm the fact that you're in that dilemma. Okay, so that's a good dilemma to be in. 
So thank you for, for being that kind of in that situation. Uh, that doesn't help answer the question, though. It just affirms the predicament. Um, and again, we, we've got to embody grace and truth at the same time. I don't think there's one right answer to this question because every scenario is a bit different. There are some good reasons to not go. There are some good reasons to go. There are bad reasons to not go, and there are bad reasons to go. A good reason to not go is if you think in conscience it just is, is not right. The Bible tells us to, to respect our consciences and to follow them. So if you feel in conscience, I just I must not go to this because it's not that the, the, the very ceremony is not pleasing to the Lord. If that's your conscience, don't go. That's a good reason not to go. Um, a good reason to go would be to think, well, the, this person knows exactly where I stand. Um, my presence is not going to be miscommunicating anything on that front. And I may be the only Christian in a room of 200 non-believers that day. And maybe there's an opportunity for me to, to be a good witness there. That would be a good reason to go. A bad reason to not go would be because you just think all gay people are icky. And you don't want to be contaminated. That would be a bad reason. A bad reason to go would be because you're so conflict-averse you don't ever want to do anything that might cause any offence whatsoever. But whatever you choose to do, whether it's going or not, doing, not going, you need to embody grace and truth. And so whatever it is you end up deciding, they need to be left in no doubt how much Jesus means to you and in no doubt how much they mean to you. If you can go or not go... <laughs> and have them know both of those things, how much they mean to you as a friend and how much Jesus means to you as a Lord, then whatever you're doing, you're doing it in the right way. Um, let's see. Uh, it seems that part of what it means to be human is to be sexual. As a same-sex attracted Christian, am I to completely deny this part of my identity or is there a healthy expression of my sexuality? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we, the first part, read the first part again. Yeah. It seems that part of what it means to be human is to be sexual. Yeah, it, it, it seems because it is. God, God, for some reason, felt it wise to put sexual energy into each one of us. Um, he came up with this idea. Uh, we, we didn't discover sex behind his back. This, is, this was God's invention, God's idea, God's design for us. So what do we then do with that when... You know, in the instance of people who are same-sex attracted, the same question could be asked for, for someone who's long-term single and doesn't think they're going to get married. What do we do with that? And do we, are we just ignoring part of our humanity if we're not giving any expression to those sexual feelings? Here, here's the thing. Um, I don't need to satisfy my sexual feelings to fulfill their purpose. Fulfilling my sexuality doesn't necessarily mean expressing and meeting my sexual needs. Because the, the bigger, deeper purpose for which God has given us sexuality in the first place, again, is, is to make us aware of our ultimate need for our union with Jesus. And so one of the things our sexuality is meant to, to show us, whatever our sexuality happens to be, whether we're married, whether we're single, is 
Underneath that sexual energy, underneath that appetite, that yearning, that longing, lies a deeper yearning and longing that is going to be met in Jesus. There is a, a more profound union that I'm created for than a one flesh union of marriage. There is a greater consummation I await when at last I will see my Saviour face to face and the church will be in the presence of her bridegroom. When I begin to understand that, actually I can be fulfilling the purpose of my sexuality because I can be allowing my sexuality, whether I'm fulfilling its feelings or not, I can be allowing my sexuality to keep pointing me to the ultimate satisfaction that comes in Jesus. And therefore, as a, as a single man, as a celibate man, I can be fulfilling my sexuality by allowing that sexual frustration to keep pushing me to find my all in Jesus. Just as if you're married, you're allowing your sexuality to, to encourage you to be faithful and chaste within marriage in a way, again, that reflects the faithfulness of Jesus to his, to his bride. So I don't feel like I'm wasting my sexuality by remaining celibate by remaining unmarried by remaining single because actually the purpose of my sexuality is to point me to that that deeper reality of of being with jesus and it means i'm not ultimately missing out so when i when i feel myself craving some kind of sexual satisfaction i can remind myself well that one flesh union i'm 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 craving actually i have a one i have a one body union 1 Corinthians 12 tells me, with the people of God. And I have a one spirit union, 1 Corinthians 6 tells me, with Jesus Christ. And those two forms of union are actually, those are eternal. Whereas that the one flesh union of marriage is, is temporal, so I'm not ultimately missing out. Great, thank you, Sam. Um, one of the questions is, how would you respond to Christians claiming that the Bible has been mistranslated or misunderstood um, to promote anti-gay agendas within the church? I think last night a similar question was uh, asked, and we didn't get to it, was citing Matthew Vines, yep. for example, um, and something that you put out several years ago. But yeah, yeah. how would you respond to that? Yeah, that's a very good question. So there have been a number of Christian writers and scholars who've tried to argue that the Bible actually is not prohibiting uh, all forms of same-sex relationship and that we've, we've misunderstood some of the passages that look like they are. Uh, Matthew Vines has, has kind of popularized that, that kind of thinking in his book, God and the Gay Christian. Uh, James Brownson, I think is his name, is, is a more academic writer who's, who's sort of written on some of these things as well, pushing for the church to accept same-sex relationships. Those are good questions to ask. We know there are, there are times in, in church history where Christians get the wrong end of the stick. Uh, that's why we love church history. That's why we need the global church. We need both history and the, the, the wider global church to help us see where our own interpretive blind spots are in the, in the time and place in which we live. So it's good to be reading the Bible conversant not just with one another, but with Christians from other times and in, with Christians from other places because they'll help us see what we're not seeing because of our own cultural blinkers. Interestingly, when we do that, one of the things we see is, is near universal unanimity across the church historically and globally when it comes to sexual ethics. 
So whether you're talking Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, uh, majority world, th this has been how the people of God have understood these things. The, the one time and place where some Christians have started to say, actually, I think the Bible is okay with same-sex relationships, happens to be within a cultural moment where that is what you need to say to be culturally accepted, which makes me suspicious that it happens to be in this time and place where Christians are thinking, I'm not sure we've got the Bible right on this. That's, that's not a, a conclusive point, but it, it, it means I'm suspicious. Um, but it means we, we need to keep going back to those texts and then saying, well, let, let's, just, let's just double check. Have we, have we understood it rightly? Are there, are there contextual issues there we've, we've missed? Um, some of the arguments would, would say things like, um, the kind of same-sex relationships, for example, Paul is prohibiting in Romans chapter 1 or in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, are exploitative gay relationships where there's a power imbalance, where it may be the, the common practice in the Roman world of pederasty, where a, an older male teacher would have a sexual relationship with a younger male student. Those sorts of things happened. Um, But I think two things need to, need to be said in response to that. The first is actually those texts themselves aren't that narrow. Paul does not simply talk about male same-sex relationships in Romans 1. He talks about female same-sex relationships in Romans 1. He's not just talking about the older male teacher and the younger male student. He's talking in more general terms. But more than that, and the point where I think some of those arguments to me are, are most lacking is the consistent connection throughout the whole Bible between marriage and our sexual differences, men and women. Uh, the, the passage I took us to last night with, with Matthew 19 itself echoing Genesis 1 and 2, there's a constant connection in the Bible between our being made as male and female and how that is what gives us the, the basis for marriage. If that connection is really there, then actually that, that does settle the issue. And which is part of the reason I, I wanted us last night to focus on those passages in Matthew's Gospel is because I'm interested in what kinds of same-sex relationships were going on in the, in the Greco-Roman world. That's useful background to be aware of. But ultimately, the issue is not going to be determined by what kind of gay relationships had Paul heard about. It's going to be determined by what does Jesus believe about marriage? And what Jesus believes about marriage, even if none of the texts in the Bible that prohibit same-sex relationship we're in the Bible, what Jesus teaches about marriage alone is enough to show us what we, what we would think about any relationship outside male-female marriage. So it's a, useful, it's a useful kind of sidebar to think through that, that kind of historical background, but I think it can also be a distraction from the, the real issue, which is, is Jesus teaching marriages between a man and a woman, and any sexual activity outside of that is sinful. That's the key issue, and I find that's the part where, where Matthew Vines and others are, are not giving due attention. And I say this as someone who, you know, in, in some respects it would make my life... I've, I've got a vested interest in, in someone saying the Bible does allow same-sex relationships. I'm just not persuaded that it does. And at the end of the day, I've, I've got to go with Jesus on this and not my, not my own internal sense of what I would desire and not my culture sense of what is what is acceptable to think. Um, 
I think uh, this question is being asked in terms of how to navigate this within the church. Um, and I would assume recognizing that um, there have been significant wounds that people have experienced trying to do so. And so this yeah. question is, as a woman attracted to women, I feel alienated and forgotten by the family-centric church. If I am to never have a partner and children, what suggestions can I make to the elders to include me? Yeah, thank you, dear friend, for, for raising that. Um, we, we talked a bit last night about the need for, for community and for the church to be a place of, of healthy intimacy, and that is not just nice, that's essential. Uh, if we're not doing that, we're not being church in the, in the biblical sense. Um, and so you shouldn't need to feel as though you have to be married or you have to be in a long-term relationship to feel as though you really do have family and you really do have community. You really are seen and valued in the life of the local church. So all of us need to work. All, that's a responsibility of all of us to, to embody that. Um, to be opening up our lives and our homes to one another such that whoever else we're with, they, they know they've got at least us to hang with. Um, all of us have, have a part to play. And that hospitality is a key thing because it, it's, it's opening up our lives and our homes for, for other people to be part of. Um, but someone should be able to say, I know I'm not married, but actually within the people of God, I feel spoiled by how much depth of relationship I get to experience. I, I feel far more deeply known by being single in the church than I would have felt if I was in a, a non-biblical relationship outside the church. If someone is not able to say that, we're not doing our job right. As, we're not yet able to say we're being truly faithful on this, on this kind of issue. So for those of us, and this isn't just an issue for single because, singles, because as I, as I said yesterday, the, the pressure on, on the marriage being all-sufficient and all-encompassing, that puts strain on married people too. Married people need to have other folks that they can be doing life with. All of us actually benefit from that wider sense of hospitality. So one of the things all of us can do is just ask each other, how are you really on this? Because your married friends may be finding this harder than they're letting on, or that you, you seem to, you, know, you might gather from their appearance. We need to ask our single friends, how, how are you doing on this? How can we help each other? And let, let's just assume all of us need more than we're probably getting at the moment. Um, some, something I heard somebody say once is, is don't compare what you're going through on the inside with what you're seeing as, in, in someone else on the outside. Uh, most people have more pain in their life than is, than is immediately apparent. Again, the purpose of a man's heart is like deep water. So it can be the case that some of us feel as though we're going through it and no one else is. Most of the time, other people are going through it way more than we see. And other people may not realize how much we're going through it. We may not actually be visibly communicating that either. So they may, they may think you're fine. And they, they may be looking at you thinking, oh, she seems to be doing great, single, she seems to be pretty self-sufficient. So all of us need to be, A, a little bit more inquisitive, gently, about one another. And all of us need to be, secondly, just a, a little bit more honest about maybe how we're doing. 
and then all of us can, can learn to help and serve each other. So I love this question because I think, um, and you mentioned this the other day, just how often in the church we see uh, people with same-sex attraction as a problem um, instead of as people. And so this question, I think, is, is driving at that and ask, are there unique gifts and lessons that Christians who are same-sex attracted or experience gender dysphoria can actually bring to the rest of the church? I love that question too. Yeah. Uh, and the answer I, I, I'm assuming is yes. God, God's just too good at, um, at using the particular experiences, struggles, situations, contexts of each, each one of us and, and making those things a means of, of blessing to everybody else. Um, just as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians that we comfort others with, with the comfort with which the Lord has comforted us. So even the particular form of suffering any one of us might go through because of our own life situation, whatever it might be, uniquely is qualifying us to serve someone else who's going through a similar kind of suffering. Um, so, so all of us have something that is unique to bring. And I, my personal view on this is that the, the Bible has a far, I think, a broader understanding of spiritual gifts than we often do. I think we often think of spiritual gifts as being particular skills and abilities. In Ephesians 4, the spiritual gift is the whole person, not just a particular skill or trait um, or ability that they bring to the table. And so I think all that has made you the person that you are now in Christ, the, the, the knocks and bruises included, are part of what is qualifying you to be a spiritual gift to the body of Christ around you, which is why they need you. And friends with gender dysphoria may have insights into what it really means to persevere with Christ, even when we're, we're wrestling against feelings of identity that we know are not biblical. I'm sure there are going to be things the rest of us can learn from, from such an experience. All of us are living in a tension between how we naturally feel about ourselves and what actually God says about who we are. All of us, there's a gap there that we need to learn to live with and, and try to keep seeing ourselves in the light of the Bible. I'm sure friends struggling with gender dysphoria and honoring Jesus, they're going to be the ones who can most help us with that. It may well be that, that our friends who, who wrestle with same-sex attraction are, particularly in this cultural moment, there, there may be some, some forms of, of self-denial there that again can help the rest of the body of Christ to taste the goodness of Jesus, even in the, in the, the cost of discipleship. So... God's just too wise, I think, for it not to be the case, that all of us can, can have some unique ways of being a blessing to, to the wider body of Jesus. Sam, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to answer these questions. I hope it's been as encouraging and helpful um, to you all as it has been to, to me. And so just want to say thank you. Can we encourage Sam? Just <laughs> saying thank you. And if I, if I could speak for Sam, just volunteer him. Um, I know after uh, each um, talk he's given, he's been kind of lingering here at the front, and folks have come and asked him questions. I know he would love if you want to come and, and just um, speak to him or have a question uh, that you want to ask him. He can maybe hang out here in front of the stage after uh, we're finished. We are going to go ahead and, uh, and wrap things up. And so as we do that, 
um, today. I just wanted to share a couple of things uh, with you as we end. Um, first of all, I, I did want to just say a, a special thank you to everybody who helped put this together and help us pull this off. Um, and uh, by name, I want to say thank you to Tyler and Tim, Eric, Michael, Langley, and Nikki uh, for all their behind-the-scenes uh, work with the media and event organization and the book table and just helping us uh, and their teams, helping us get everything squared away. So thank you so much into Seven Mile Road for hosting us. Um, also wanted to mention another opportunity, another event um, that Seven Mile Road uh, will be hosting and we'll be partnering with them on is an event uh, featuring Ray Ortland. So you may have heard Ray's name. If you stopped by the book table, you saw his book, The Death of Porn. Sam mentioned it last night. Um, uh, we're going to be having Ray come May 6th and 7th uh, to do a special event uh, based on that book that came out uh, late last year. And so I just want to encourage you uh, to mark your calendar May 6th and 7th for that event. Um, maybe last thing I just wanted to encourage uh, all of us uh, to do is, uh, is to not leave the things that we have heard um, here uh, to really take with us um, and take to heart and really bring before the Lord and consider and talk about together and talk about in our churches uh, the things that Sam has put before us. I think the things that the Lord has put before us. Um, it's been a great gift uh, to have you here, Sam, and to hear what God's put on your heart. And it's ministered to all of us. And so um, I did want to say thank you, especially to you, just for being here. And we're just so blessed by you and your ministry. So um, thank you so much. And uh, to, to that end, I did want to just encourage you... Um, uh, if you would like to honor Sam, one way that you could do that uh, certainly would be uh, through a gift. And so he doesn't know that I'm going to say this. He didn't ask me to say this. So I just want to be clear about that. Um, but we have set up on uh, the ApostlesHouston.org website uh, a way that you can give online and make a special gift just to Sam and his ministry. And so I know it would be a great uh, blessing to him and honor him. And it's a way just to show our gratitude uh, for how much of a blessing he has been. So again, if you go to ApostlesHouston.org, if you want to give online, you can make a designated gift uh, to Sam. But can we give him one more round of applause just to say thank you? All right. Great. I'd love to pray for Sam and pray for us as we go. So would you all join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise um, for your son, Jesus. Lord, that he is the one who has sought after us that knows us through and through, uh, that's the only one that can satisfy us. And Lord, it's because of his great love for us. And so Lord, we give you thanks for that, and I thank you for being reminded of that great news of Jesus Christ uh, this, uh, this weekend. Lord, we thank you for Sam, and we thank you for the words that you've given and the words that we've received. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the ways that you've been at work. I thank you for the work that's been going on in, uh, in hearts across this room. Lord, we do pray um, that uh, you would minister to those who feel lonely and cut off. Uh, Lord, those who feel unknown and unloved. Lord, that they would know your great love for them. Lord, that they would know what life with you uh, is like and that they would experience that through your church. And so, Lord, we just uh, we thank you again for our time together. And uh, we give all the praise and glory to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.